Taliban created. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. 2013, uh, year in review, part three on the program, on the hour today. Uh, We're going to be looking back at the past uh, critical urban discussions we've had here on the program and uh, those uh, most important and and notable uh, stories from the past year. Um, I'm going to have a live guest, uh, Ellen Woodsworth, former Vancouver City Councilor, uh, joining me to discuss some of her uh, big issues um, that she watched over the course of the year. All that and more on the program. Stay with me. And thanks so much for being with me. I'm Andy Longhurst on the program. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking back at, at the things that we covered here on the program. This is the city, and it is an hour dedicated to criti- critical urban discussions. And uh, over the course of the year, we've covered uh, topics, um, a wide range of topics, um, hopefully giving you a bit of a uh, look into different, um, different urban issues um, from, from a critical perspective, something that I think uh, is important that we do and, and really have a, a critical lens as we approach, uh, whether it's housing or transportation, um, food and, uh, and affordability, um, regardless of the issues, um, being critical about what, what we're hearing and who's, who's saying certain things and, and what, really why it matters. Um, so first on the program, um, Ellen Woodsworth, former Vancouver City Councilor, is going to be joining me in a moment um, live on the phone. Um, but uh, until we have her on the line, we're going to hear, uh, we're going to be going back to some of the focus, um, uh, the features from the course of the year. And the first one is a conversation uh, with Jean Barman, and she um, is in the Faculty of Education um, at the University of British Columbia and has written on the history of Stanley Park. We're going to hear first from Jean Barman about Stanley Park, and this is a conversation um, because 2013 marked the 125th anniversary of Stanley Park, and her research really talks about um, displacement and and um, peoples and families um, and the lives that were displaced in the in the creation and the making of Stanley Park. So something important that we think about when we think about somewhat uh, triumphant, often colonial interpretations of what Stanley Park is as a space. Um, within the city as very much an urban space. So first, Jean Barman. I guess more broadly, too, can you, I mean, we talk about Stanley Park and we talk about these um, instances of displacement, but can you talk more more broadly about, um, you use the term um, uh, essentially sort of the erasure of indigenous indigeneity in Vancouver. Right. Can, you, can you talk more broadly about these processes within Vancouver sure. and within BC? Sure. Uh, well, 
I, I mean, I think what's happening in Vancouver is, as you say, as you suggest, is part of a much larger process of displacement. And part of that displacement came about more generally because indigenous people used the whole province. If you look at, uh, <coughs> excuse me, British Columbia, you know, it was a, it was the large uh, coast. People lived along the coast who had uh, more complicated, more complex lifestyles in general, more, because they had to spend less time uh, dealing with the basics of life. Because resources, cedar, salmon, were very plentiful. Uh, other resources were very plentiful. Needed people in the interior who had to spend more time actually make a li- making a living. But the, the bottom line is that people lived all over, and so when reserves were established. Um, and here we have to keep in mind that uh, there are no treaties in British Columbia and in the rest of Canada um, where reserves were set up. Reserves were set up as a consequence of treaty making. You make a treaty with us, we'll provide health services, we'll provide education, um, and you will give us your land and we will leave you We will leave you, uh, you know, a space for a reserve. Well, the reserves were set up in any case, and the reserves were set up across the whole province. And so what you have in British Columbia is a kind of, a, you know, an unintended set of displacements, I think, in the largest setting, because the reserves exist across British Columbia, and that's where people, lots of indigenous people, I mean, where indigenous people call their home. But, in fact, settlement in British Columbia, newcomer settlement in British Columbia, has been very much concentrated around the uh, southwestern tip with little nodes elsewhere. If you think of Kelowna, Kamloops, you think of Prince George, Terrace, these are Prince Rupert. These are small small little areas within a much larger space. So in a sense, people who live on reserves uh, have often very limited economic possibilities. And so a lot of people who call the reserves home do not, in fact, live there. And so you have a, you have a, I think you have a very broad-based displacement, which um, of which what happened with Stanley Park and Kitsilano Reserve is symbolic. But you have a, a large, large number of people who define themselves as indigenous, uh, who are displaced because of historical circumstances. They live in Vancouver or Victoria, or live in one of the larger cities, or li- even live in Prince Rupert. But in fact, are from reserves around that area. And so there are people who are uh, existing on two different levels. They're existing in urban areas, but they're also existing as people who have got a homeland, but a homeland that they, for economic reasons, simply cannot afford to be uh, not afford to be at. Um, the people who were removed from Vancouver um, went to, in part, went to you know went to reserves. Uh, not all of them, because the people who were removed from Stanley Park lived, uh, were given, it was the beginning of the Depression, Great Depression, the beginning of the 1930s, and they were given rental accommodations of people who had been, uh, you know, people who had lost their, uh, had lost their homes because of the economic circumstances. And so the people who were physically moved out of Stanley Park were moved into these kinds of homes in East Vancouver. But there, but there was, for them as well, um, the same kind of displacement in the sense that you have one, home, one homeland which you identify with and you are forced to live live and spend your actual working life uh, somewhere else due to political or economic circumstances which are not your fault, you're not to blame for it, but they nonetheless impinge on you dramatically in your 
everyday life. Mm. Uh, when I, can I go on for a minute? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. When I, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I wrote this book called Stanley Park Seaford, not because I set out to write that book, but because uh, over I've written other things on British Columbia history, and I've talked to a lot of people. I like talking to people about their experiences as British Columbians, their family's experience in British Columbia, and I met uh, a couple of different people who told me, you know, if you really want to write a good story, write about our family, because we used to live in Stanley Park, and they'd tell me these stories about it, and I would then uh, think, well, this is interesting, but I've never heard about this, and I would look at the standard uh, work things and publish, and I'd see no evidence of uh, families having lived in Stanley Park. A little bit about, yes, there were some indigenous people, but they quickly left, but that was it. And then um, I was on a radio show, and I was talking about one of these people in another context, and someone phoned in, and I was the message was passed on to me, and it was a woman who lived in the Fraser Valley. Um, and she wanted me to come out and talk to her, and I went out and so I went out and seen, spent an hour talking to her about it. She had uh, grown, she was one of the families, her, uh, one of the Brockton Point families. Plus, on the other side, she was one of the, another group of people who were displaced, who were indigenous Hawaiians who had come with the fur trade and then worked as uh, laborers and worked in the docks in Vancouver, who lived at what was called Kanaka Ranch, which is where the, uh, uh, right across the water on the other side of Devon's, um uh, Denman's uh, Island. And she talked about both those families and talked about uh, displacement. And uh, I said, well, it's very good, but I don't know anything. She said, oh, well, I wrote it down. I've written I spent days writing this down for you, and she gave me a floppy disk, which she had the basic <laughs> of the story on. And so I was caught, and I ended up writing the book. Mm. And the book based on a chain, of, a chain of acquaintance where they knew families. I talked to these people and talked to other people. Then I read the Stanley Park uh, I read the park board minutes about Stanley Park, and I could see, you know, once I knew the names of people and once I had that story, which came from descendants, I could read the park board minutes in a very different way than I had done before. But my point of telling you this story is you talk about displacement, how important it is. Well, these were <clears throat> the people that I met and I talked to, descendants, and probably at least a dozen and probably more. I don't can't tell you right now many. But they all, even though this was... Um, about 2003, 2005, 2006, this is now two generations after their families were uh, dispossessed, displaced from Stanley Park. They still identified with it incredibly strongly. Hmm. And they, <clears throat> it's somewhere that they called home they would go back to. Um, one person I talked to, family that lived in Alberta, they told the story of how this woman had died in about 1998 who was descended from the Stanley Park families. And they wanted to put her ashes underneath a lilac tree, which is uh, near Brockton Point, which is still there, or descendant of the lilac tree is still there, and they're very, families are very attached to it. <coughs> so, excuse me, so they wrote to the park board and said, can we please do it? And the park board said, uh, at that point, it was pretty, uh, you know, pretty traditional. We do not allow ashes in Stanley Park. So, in any case, they came and did it anyway. But <laughs> uh, now what you have, what you have in Stanley Park, is you have um, the descendant, of son of one family, one of the last women, uh, women who grew up in Stanley Park. Uh, there were the peop- he was the instigator for carving the new totem pole that's gone up there. And that went up about uh, four, four or five uh, years ago in honor of his, um, of his mother and of all the families who lived there. Uh, it's the one which is the unpainted one in the front. And then you have another set of descendants who are creating a sculpture in honor of uh, 
the member of their family who was one of the first people to live in Stanley Park, and that's got permission from the park board to go up and will probably be erected in the next couple of years, uh, which is him plus uh, the two indigenous women he lived with, one after the first one died. So the point is that, you know, displacement is something that happens at a point in time, a historical point in time. We're talking about displacement, which happened almost, you know, 90 years ago, but it's still absolutely critical to the lives of, you know, lots and lots of people. Can you... And that was um, Jean Barman, and she uh, is the author of Stanley Park Secret, and that was the winner of the 2006 uh, Vancouver City of Vancouver Book Prize. Uh, again, Stanley Park Secret, The Forgotten Families of Woi Woi, Kanaka Ranch, and Brockton Point. And uh, that, that was a um, portion of an interview from uh, September of this year. And uh, this is all part of was part of the Making Stanley Park um, miniseries um, that that aired over the course of the year, um, beginning with the the conversation with Jean Barman. So we're going to now go to a conversation with Renisa Mawani. Um, Dr. Mawani is a sociologist at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, and uh, we spoke um, at length about. Um, the, the legal, how the law is used um, uh, for displacement and sort of the technologies of law. And this is one of R- Renisa Manwani's, um, uh, her research um, areas. And uh, we're going to hear this short um, discussion with her next. You talk about, uh, and a lot of your work um, reflects on and explores um, the sort of the legal technologies or, or actions that were used um, to enact that erasure. Can you talk more specifically about that and, and how that relates to Stanley Park? Sure. So um, the first few, well, the, the peninsula was initially uh, designated through maps as a military reserve, and then in later maps it became a government reserve. Um, and even though it was an area that was inhabited by Aboriginal people, none of those Aboriginal people were actually marked on these maps. Um, the map essentially produced uh, a piece of land that was empty, that was devoid of any inhabitants. And this becomes really critical in... Um, in cases around property, for example. So who owns the land? Who was there? Were there conceptions? Did the people who lived there have conceptions of, uh, legal conceptions of property that correspond to the ways in which property is conceived in Western law? Um, so that's one of the ways in which these uh, processes of erasure take place in the context of law. Another one, as I just mentioned, is through mapping. Um, by mapping and identifying the land in a particular way, by renaming it and re-territorializing it, it essentially lends, um, these technologies lend themselves to arguments about emptiness and about terra nullius, which essentially means empty or vacant land. But there are many other technologies that are not necessarily legal, but that feed into um, into map making and various legal processes. And one of the ones that I've thought about quite a bit, but I haven't actually written about, is through plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which, and planting, of course, is central to conceptions of property. So, what's interesting about Stanley Park is that um, the, pa- the map was drawn of a government and then a military reserve. 
can lose some of the Cottonwood Gardens. Chinatown's going to go. Um, you know, why, if we're tearing down the viaducts, why don't we do what Seoul created and create another Stanley Park or create a, a waterway from uh, Falls Creek down to Crab Park? And the fact that Jim Green and Larry Beasley won the competition by being funded by Aquilini, I thought, said a lot. You know, we're, yeah. we're not being creative and we're not creating the kind of green space I would have expected out of a green council. Council's saying um, the viaducts is a big one, and um, we've touched on it over the course of the year on the program. Uh, they're arguing that with that, that unlocks land that then could be used for affordable housing. Uh, do you see that as a as a possibility? Well, I'm looking for real affordable housing, so it's one-third of your income if you're a pensioner or a welfare or low-income, um, so that we're not having people in Salvation Army uh, shelters that are, are working but can't afford the rents. I mean... I, I'm looking at the city land that exists on the site, and what we're getting back in terms of community amenity contributions are minimal. They're nowhere near 20%. And, you know, we're we're not reaching the uh, distribution of parks to per capita that the Parks Board set as a goal. So I, I don't see why we're tearing down viaducts if we're not going to achieve the kind of critical uh, mass of affordability, affordable housing we need to keep people to live in the city, to work and to play in the areas of the city, because we're going to end up with a lot of unaffordable housing and young people being forced to move outside the city and then, you know, drive in to get the jobs, which is, you know, really counterintuitive. What do you make of um, the the loss of... Um of uh, cultural spaces, and um, we we had a conversation around um, the the uh, the organizing around the Waldorf and um, the potential loss and the ultimate loss of of that space based on the current um, programming. Um, I mean, this is playing out not only there, but the Hollywood Theater, um, the Arbutus um, Ridge Theater has already been demolished for condos uh, for condo development there. Um, the the jazz cellar on uh, West Broadway at Alma is also going to be closing its doors. Um, I, I guess what do you what do you make of all of this, and and what what should we be concerned about here? Well, you know, the playhouse is another one that we could just go on and on. Yeah. I mean, there's we've lost so much, so many cultural centers, and so much, uh, so many of the heritage sites, and you know. They've had a dedicated counselor to the arts. You know, they, they know what's happening, and yet we still don't have the heritage guidelines in place that are strict enough, and we don't have the protection for cultural centers. And, you know, a lot of the... We're, we're losing cultural centers, but we're... Again, we're losing affordable space that cultural groups could go into. So it's, it's a double whammy at a time when there's no funding coming from the federal government and uh, very little coming from the provincial government under the new uh, gaming guidelines. So it's, uh, you know, my neighbors are musicians. Like, he just says there's no place to go play anymore. You know, it's it's shocking because we, we think of ourselves as a very culturally sophisticated city, but we're... We're just losing it all. I mean, even the uh, the center going down and becoming a church. Um, so 
we need to use the zoning and permit bylaws that we have to preserve spaces and to see how we can get, you know, a substantive uh, increase of space. I mean, you know, the wall development on uh, Hastings Street is another example of like, losing a view corridor, um, the, the, uh, losing the arts groups that are in that space, and they give about a few, you know, what, 75 units the city's going to have to manage, but they won't be able to manage it at a low-income rate level. And driving up the uh, land value all down east of, um, sorry, west, I think, of, of uh, Campbell and Hawks, where he's developing it, I, I just, why, why are people getting away with that? I mean, while did a major development on Boundary, and there was no affordable housing in that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that these developers who I was told while I was on council are making between 19 and 50 percent profit on their developments should be contributing more to the city to enable the city to be a city that everyone can live in. One one issue is um, the bike lanes and a lot of the sort of reactive politics around that. Do you do you think though over the past year um, that this issue and we can even maybe take this back to 2012 and earlier? Uh, do you think this issue sort of sucks the air out of the room for other maybe larger discussions around uh, transportation and equity and whether um, and this is also an issue we've covered here on the program that. Um, Vancouver itself is becoming um, more and more of a, a wealthy city, um, and, and we have the, the numbers to back that up as poverty gets pushed to the periphery into the suburbs, and then we have people commuting for their minimum wage jobs into, the, into Vancouver. Uh, things like transportation, the compass card as another issue. Um, uh, just going back to my first point, is, is cycling in a way, sort of doing doing disservice to these broader discussions about transportation and equity across the region? Um, well, I think that there certainly has been a big fur around the bike lanes, and certainly Rob Armstrong, who was leading the fight uh, around some of the bike lanes in the downtown core, put, what, 900000 into... Uh, Susan Anton's campaign into the MPA. So clearly there are people um, who are driving this as a major issue rather than, you know, really putting pressure on TransLink and on elected board to put in money for public transit along Broadway and uh, for more buses and to keep fares affordable, which are critical issues. Um, you know, I, whether they distract from uh, critical issues that we that we should be talking about, I don't know. I mean, the, it's the media who pick up particular issues. You know, they they play these issues. So we until we get more media that will play up the critical issues, like the governance of the P and E and why that isn't under the jurisdiction of the park board and. Um, why can't the east side have a good, decent park? Um, 
you know, some of these very important issues really vanish and the issues that have been raised by the Carnegie Action Project about affordable housing and um, in the downtown east side and why we need it for the whole city get lost. Um, bike lanes, I don't, uh, as a bicyclist, I still don't understand why people get so irate. There are the, you know, there are some people on bikes that do stupid things and uh, they're really annoying. But, you know, I I don't know why there's a momentum between that particular one. Maybe because there's nothing else that people are getting traction on. Mm. I mean, last night, you know, I thought there was a lot of us there speaking out about any possible further expense of, of casino, and I think Vision really missed the boat on that one, but now today they're coming out and McGregor's made a strong statement um, to make sure that there is no possibility to further expand uh, the uh, gambling at, at the new site, 38 Smythe, but we'll see that, you know, there's just, uh, there seems to be um, ways in which the City Hall is has an agenda, it's driving its agenda and doing good stuff with some of it, but they don't seem to want to listen to anyone who's outside their group. And I think that's really tragic because I think that a lot of the things that they're trying to drive, like the greenness agenda or, you know, what what they're calling affordable housing and housing the homeless could be so much better if they really listen to what neighborhoods are saying and what people are saying about real affordability and what people are wanting in terms of the Greenest City agenda and its impact on, the, on say, east side of Vancouver. And somehow, if, if they're criticized, they just get really defensive. We're powerless and blame the people who are raising the issue. What do you think um, we're likely to see in the next year? We see a lot of these things still um, uh, playing out at the neighborhood level, a lot of discontent. Um, but but what do you think um, we're likely to see in, in the early months of 2014? Well, perhaps the biggest disappointment I have with the mayor and council is that they had committed to looking at serious electoral reform. And the, the motion that I got through council chairing a, a cross-party committee of MPA, COPE, and Vision that went, then went to the Union of BC Municipalities. Just, it, you know, it, it, it's not there. Gregor's never had the forum that he said he would have about uh, some kind of electoral forms. We still don't have wards. We still don't have um, anything that regulates funding of parties. So I assume we're going to go into another election where the MPA are going to spend up to two million, Vision's going to spend up to two million, and other parties just get cut out of the um, scenario. And I just walked by a neighbor in Strathcona this morning, and she said, "I'm not voting for the MPA. I never have, but this time I'm not voting for Vision, and I think I'm just not going to vote." And because there's no coherent coalition on the left and lots of little splinter groups, I think that we're, as I see it now, and a lot can happen in a year, but if it plays out the way it's playing out right now, we're probably going to see Vision get reelected with a majority and the MPA may pick up another seat or two. 
I guess we'll leave it at that, Ellen. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see if some of those predictions <laughs> remain uh, remain true as as we enter the next year. Okay. Thanks for your good work, Andy. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. That was Ellen Woodsworth, former Vancouver City Councilor, and founder and co-chair of Women Transforming Cities. This is the 2013 Year in Review here on The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and we're live here CITR Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM Fridays 10 to 11 a.m. We're now going to head to a few more highlights from 2013. This is a conversation now with Mark Dussard, um, and he is... Um, an urban um, uh, researcher and um, at uh, the University of um, uh, Illinois um, Urbana-Champaign. And uh, his 2013 book um, is called Degraded Work, The Struggle at the Bottom of the Labor Market. And uh, in his work, he outlines um, why um, uh, growth of service sector jobs in North America and low-wage jobs um, lead to greater inequality and the implications of deteriorating job quality in Chicago, which is his case study. But this is also a more broader indictment of what's playing out across North American cities. This is Mark Dussard on The City, the 2013 Year in Review. I guess, first of all, um, what central questions does your book set out to explore and, and what do you argue in it? Okay. You know, I wanted to know why the worst jobs in the U.S. were in industries that are insulated from international competition. So for people like me who fought about job quality and just where we would get employment that could make for a decent standard of living, we've always looked at kind of the specter of foreign competition, right? That moving moving jobs abroad or having to compete on wage rates with used to be Mexico, now it's China, was the main problem. And so there, there, those were always flawed explanations, but they were explanations of why some jobs were becoming a lot worse. Uh, but you know, what was striking to me during the 2000s uh, economic boom in the U.S. was that the worst jobs were in industries that didn't have to compete internationally, right? So they were in construction, retail, janitorial services. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the uh, the polite way some people would put it is that we uh, thought about it ass backwards, right? That we, we uh, focus on job quality in industries where we focus, we take for granted poor job quality in industries that don't have to compete globally. And we obsess over job quality in industries that can be uh, bid down from competition abroad. And it just seemed backwards. So that was kind of the, the first question I wanted to look at, is if we could explain why why the worst jobs were the jobs that didn't have to, uh, that didn't compete like that. And the reason why I did that is because if you could explain why job quality in those jobs had changed, you know, in your retail jobs and so on, that it starts to look like a matter of political choice rather than market necessity. And that opens the door for public policy to uh, make things better off for a lot of people. And so what I argue, what I argue is that, yes, in fact, uh, there are 
policy choices that underlie the uh, that underlie just kind of the decimation of job quality in so many of these industries. Uh, we in the U.S. we tend not to fund enforcement of our basic labor laws. So if you pay less than the minimum wage, for example, the odds are unlikely that you're going to get caught, and the penalty doesn't fit the crime. If you fire workers for supporting a labor union, uh, that's illegal, but the penalty is basically a slap on the wrist after a civil suit. And uh, just to kind of add salt to the wound, if you would, you owe all you owe a worker for illegally firing her is back wages that you would have paid her anyway, minus any wages she earned on another job in the meantime. So it it's not exactly a healthy deterrent. So I looked I looked at that and other things like that and determined that yes, this is very much, um, very much a policy choice. Now, um, at, at what level? I mean, just for listeners yeah. in the Canadian context, we have uh, provincial labor standards or employment standards that regulate um, elements of the the employment uh, contract or employment uh, arrangement. Uh, what are the the scales or the levels at which um, theoretically uh, these things are regulated at? Uh, you know, that, that's a great question. It's many scales. It's primarily federal. So we have some state-level variations in labor laws, particularly around who's a, the official employer in a subcontracting or temp worker in, in a situation. But most of, most, of this, most of this originates at the federal level. The the quirk, right, is that we have a lack of political will at the national level to do anything about this. Do do laws at the federal level make it that much more impossible or unlikely that they will be actually enforced? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think one of the, the classic examples is the wage and hour division of the U.S. Department of Labor, which enforces the minimum wage. Uh, since the late 1970s, the number of workplaces in the U.S. has more than doubled, and funding for that agency after you adjust for inflation is down. So if you look at it that way, you know we basically have about 40% as many inspectors to enforce the laws we did before. Uh, the Obama administration has reversed some of that, but not enough, and they seem to have had a bit of a fight on doing it. So uh, consistent and perpetual underfunding of this kind of thing is just par for the course. Mm-hmm. And what's distinctive about the U.S. then is we have, uh, we have these federally created problems, right? Labor, labor laws that can't be updated due to political opposition that aren't enforced, uh, large amounts of undocumented immigration that doesn't officially exist. So there you have millions of workers around the U.S. in this legal gray area. These are all issues that emerge federally, and yet nobody is doing anything about it. So it comes down to your community organization or neighborhood coalition down the street to do something about it. And that's a pretty tall order, right? I mean, uh, you think globally, act locally, and all that, but it's pretty tough to see how, at the neighborhood or the city level, you can really countermand any of this. And a lot of what the book does is take a closer look at industries to find some pressure points where these 
frankly uh, outmatched neighborhood organizations can find can can extract a little more a uh, little more good outcomes for their efforts. And that was Mark Dussard and his 2013 book Degraded Work. Uh, discussed um, uh, labor market um, inequalities and uh, the urban and regional economy in Chicago, uh, looking at a a few um, uh, uh, key industries and sectors um, of the economy and and looking at the implications um, for um, broader social and economic inequality um, around um, coming out of um, low-wage work and degraded work. Also on the program uh, from uh, recently, from the end of November of this year, uh, we heard from uh, Jamie Peck at the Spaces of Contestation Art, Activism in the City speaker series. And uh, this is um, Jamie Peck, who is um, Canada Research Chair in Urban and Regional Political Economy and Professor of Geography at UBC. Um, is author of uh, many books and and articles, Um, but he's specifically um, in this talk um, discussing this idea of the creative class and the creative city um, theory or or, um, sort of policy um, uh, initiative. And so he he critically unpacks what this um, uh, creativity hype uh, means and its implications for broader um, urban and regional policy. This is, again, Jamie Peck. What I want to suggest about the Richard Florida uh, phenomenon um, is that it's an extremely expedient uh, form of framework for urban policy in this neoliberalized terrain uh, that I talked about at the, at the start. Creative city strategies are seamlessly compatible with a world based on urban promotion efforts, on competitive styles of economic development, on widening social inequality on urban bootstraps where we are all expected to pull ourselves up by our own uh, efforts and we should reward those that do, the talented, and the subsidisation of gentrification as a public policy goal. The creative class thesis fits perfectly, hand in glove, with these business-as-usual features of urban economic development policy. You might even say that it was designed for this environment uh, through which it's travelled at great speed. So what it provides then is a new urban policy uh, configuration. It enables a funky makeover of relatively conventional forms of urban economic development. It allows that group of uh, well-known actors in Detroit, for example, to present themselves as advocates of a creative creative economy, to adorn their strategies uh, with with local artists and rappers and so on, uh, while essentially still pursuing the same underlying goals. So it provides a way of freshening up a rather stale uh, urban economic development paradigm, which had really not been delivering the goods now for a generation. On the flip side, What creativity policies allow is they offer certain parts of the cultural policy community to claim an economic rationale. And given much of the cultural sector is chronically underfinanced, I wouldn't blame anyone actually for taking advantage of this as a way of making a claim for improved funding for an art centre or a museum or whatever it is. This is a seductive um, argument that seems to play with urban leaders and um, 
you know, many leaders of cultural organisations have decided to jump on the bandwagon and effectively present their version of culture as an economic development asset as well. What happens in the process is a new kind of creative growth coalition is formed, which includes the usual kinds of suspects from real estate and big business, but now would include selected members of the cultural communities um, that would join in these coalitions to, again, push particular kinds of projects for the city. What creative city strategies also do is effectively eventize urban development. They provide a rationale for high visibility, low cost, quick return interventions. No surprise these are appealing to mayors with, a, with terms of four or five years uh, ahead of them. Uh, they can go and open an art center and present this as part of their wider economic development strategy and so on. These quick returns, these investments are often relatively modest compared with the kinds of sums you would have to spend on real economic development strategies. This is small potatoes. So you can run a creative policy, policy strategy at relatively low cost, um, and it fits with what cities are able to do in the present climate. In a nutshell, established urban interests have nothing to fear from the creative class. This is enti entirely consistent with the current political economy of the neoliberal uh, city. As I move to a conclusion, uh, make this point about the kind of argument which seems to gain traction in, the, uh, in this world at the present time, the kind of argument that Florida has presented. His book, as I mentioned, was a, is a sort of lifestyle guide for the would-be creative class, amongst other things, in which he celebrates various aspects of his own life, including uh, excruciating descriptions of his kitchen um, and the fancy equipment he's got in there, discussions of his hairdresser and her husband's job and all kinds of strange stuff. But one of the things he likes to celebrate is bicycling. And as somebody who also rides a bicycle, uh, this is one of the things that particularly gets under my skin, but I think actually speaks to the essence of Florida's approach here. Bicycling, he claims, is a de rigueur social skill for creatives, since to climb onto a bicycle and become the engine is a truly transformative experience, a creative experience. Uh, he says that he goes on to explain that creatives aren't particularly interested in team sports. Um, they prefer their own pumping thighs and to draw on their inner sources uh, when they are exercising. Uh, the creatives do, in fact, play alone. This is a celebration of a highly individualistic, self-absorbed, narcissistic uh, element of urban culture, which is presented as a paradigm for urban growth in, Flor in Florida's book. And the cultural critic Nick Lehman has written the most searing critique of this, which I think captures uh, the problems perfectly. The bicycle supplies an apt metaphor for the kind of commentary we get in an intellectual world that grows steadily more indifferent to questions of economic fairness and narrowing social opportunity. Its inhabitants find themselves speaking confidently on behalf of recombined new elites and entire economic orders. They are pleased to see their consumer choices ratified by history and their own taste preferences elevated as models for new networks of production and urban geographies. Their minds race and their hearts beat faster, but they ignore the ground speeding beneath their feet. So in conclusion, um, I want to suggest 
that the creativity fix uh, this particular blend of economic development and culture associated with uh, Florida's arguments has traveled so far and fast, not because it's revolutionary, world-changing, as, as it's advertised by its author, uh, but because it's minimally disruptive of the established patterns of neoliberal urbanism. It's constructed for this environment, it's traveled across this landscape, it's uh, it insinuated itself into urban policy uh, networks and so on, um, rather predictably, I would argue, uh, but also quite stubbornly and doggedly. So it's not been seriously displaced by something else, uh, at least not so far. What the creativity uh, script does is it effectively provides a script and hails urban actors for this kind of funky makeover of what is business as usual urbanism. And that was Jamie Peck. Again, all of these are um, highlights from uh, from programs, um, interviews, uh, talks from 2013 on the city. And you can find those at thecityfm.org. Again, thecityfm.org. And follow the program on Facebook by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. And uh, follow the program on Twitter um, by searching the handle thecity underscore fm. And uh, this has been part three, um, the last part of our 2013 year in review, looking back at those um, interviews, critical urban discussions, and the events that shaped 2013, um, and uh, all of the things and more that um, we brought to the program over the past year. So thank you so much for uh, listening in, um, providing your feedback on Facebook, Twitter, um, and uh, again, um, uh, tuning in live here on CATR, syndicated on CGSF, or as a podcast um, from the cityfm.org and off of iTunes as well. That's it for the year. Um, there, uh, there, there will not be another um, edition of the city um, before um, 2014, so enjoy uh, the holiday season and uh, have a great week, and we'll see you in 2014. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in.